Well, good morning. Uh, welcome again. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're resuming our series in the Gospel of Mark that we actually started last year, which we said is a compact account of the coming of Jesus Christ uh, to redeem the world from the brokenness of sin through his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and we're focusing in now on this last part of the book of Mark, on the last days of Jesus as he makes his way to the cross for our redemption. In our text today, as we look towards the cross slowly at the end of this book, we have three separate episodes, individual passages as it were, tied together by a common, a key theme, which is religious and political leaders of the day uh, confronting and trying to discredit Jesus and Jesus attempting to lovingly but firmly draw their spiritually blind hearts back to God through questions. These confrontations are what we're going to see today in these individual passages drawn together. Confrontations between the local leaders and Jesus. Uh, these confrontations come in the wake of actually of last week's passage, Mark chapter 11 in chapter 11 verses 15 through 19. Uh, there Jesus cleared out the temple. He drove out all those who were buying and selling and changing money, all those who were turning the main place of God into what he called a den of robbers, uh, turning it into something that was a place of commerce, not a place of worshiping the God who was and who is and who is to come. It was not set apart because they had put things in there that were not meant to go in the house of God. Now that event, that clearing out the temple of those things that were getting in the way of the worship of God, that understandably certainly would have ruffled some feathers in the local leadership, uh, which we'll see represented in our text in several different ways today. Uh, certainly would have brought reactions out of them like, who does Jesus think he is? What does he think he's doing to our temple? Who put him in charge? How dare you come into our house and do that? Sadly, what Jesus' actions in clearing out the temple awoke in them was not repentance and humility for what they had done. It was not pain over having made God's house into something that it was never meant to be. That's what Jesus' actions should have done. It should have led them to repentance, to recognition that we have not been doing what is right before God, that we need to change, that we need spiritual revival. But instead, it awoke in them confrontation, anger, pride. Despite that response, however, that, that turn of hardness instead of a softness of heart, Jesus still tries to draw their spiritually blind hearts back to God. And that's actually great news for us because we have spiritually blind hearts too and we need someone to pull us back to God, especially when we don't want to. To see what Jesus has to say to our own blind hearts and how he leads us out of our blindness, I want to look at the three confrontations of this passage and a key question that each one brings up. But we're just going to organize our time together around these three confrontations we see in the text. The confrontation in the temple, a confrontation in a parable, and a confrontation in a coin. So the confrontation in the temple, uh, through a parable, and in a coin. But before we get started, would you just pray with me that God would fill up our time together and lead our blind hearts. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. 
after a long week, after what already feels like a long year, with news we've not wanted to hear many times, with events that we've not wanted to witness, with pain even in our own congregation, missing members of our church family now. God, we pray that you would be with our hearts this morning as we try to make our way through a year that feels itself full of confrontation, full of bitterness and anger and difficulty. God, would you be the light in our midst? Would you be the one who lifts up our head, who gives light to our eyes, that we might see who you are, that you would raise our head above these clouds, that we might look and behold the goodness of who you are, the promise of the life to come, the certainty that you are coming. So, Father, would you fill up our time this morning? Speak to these hearts. You are the one that they need. Would you supply yourself there? In your Son's name and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's move into our our first structural point here, uh, seeing the confrontation in the temple. Our passage starts out right away with confrontation as Jesus is just walking in the temple uh, in chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. There, Jesus is confronted by what our text says are the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who want to know the answer to this one question. By what authority has he done these things? Or who, who gave him authority to do that? And we have to remember, this is just one day after Jesus cleared out the temple. That's what they're asking about. Who gave him authority to do that? Who, who said it was okay for you to come in here and do that? Uh, and as one commentator notes, these, these groups, these three entities, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, these three groups made up the leadership of the ruling body of the nation of Israel at that time. They had authority over all religious matters. So these were the authorities over the very temple that Jesus had cleared out and over the spiritual life of Israel. But their questions show that they're not really curious here. They're angry. These are questions that don't expect an answer. These are questions that that, uh, expect submission because they were the authorities of the temple in their eyes and Jesus had just embarrassed them. They, understandably from that posture, want to put him in his place and they want to put down this rival authority that he is seeming to wield here. Now, Jesus responds to this confrontation, this this question that's not really a question, with a question of his own. But it's not a question designed to justify his own authority, but a question rather that's designed to graciously invite them to consider whether they are really using their authority well, whether they're using their authority in the way that God intended. So how... How is he going to do that? Well, he does it by asking about the ministry of John the Baptist. That prophetic ministry of John, Jesus said, his calling uh, the nation to repent and be baptized because someone greater than him was coming, who we know to be Jesus. Was that prophetic ministry, Jesus is asking, was that from God or from men? Now, it's an important question for Jesus to ask them in regards to their ability to lead, because if John made that whole ministry up, if that was not from God, then they, as the leaders of the people, were duty-bound to denounce that movement as a threat to the vital worship life of the people of God. 
as something that would lead them astray from God. They were duty-bound to stand up against that, to stand up against false worship. The leaders of God's people have always been charged with leading people to God and keeping them from wandering astray from God through false worship. So what this question is really asking on Jesus' behalf here is, is, do they really know what's a threat to the spiritual life of the people of God, or do they not? Do they know where to actually lead people to find life? Or are they completely mistaken about where life is found? That's what he's asking them. Do you really know what's a threat to the spiritual life of God if you are their leaders? Do you know how to lead them to life? Their response shows in verse 33 that that they don't actually know. They don't know whether John's ministry led to life or led to death. They don't know whether it was from men or from God. They can't see what leads people to life and what doesn't. And they reveal themselves in this moment not to be these preeminent leaders of wisdom, but to be, as Jesus calls them in Matthew's gospel, blind guides. That's what Jesus is getting at in this question. Do you really see what leads to life? And Jesus' question, though, uh, was not really meant to tell them to stop being Israel's leaders. It was not to divest them of power. Jesus is not advocating the overthrow of these local rulers here. He's not trying to shame them. He is trying to get them to stop being blind, to see what leads to life and to lead others there. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. Not to tear them down, but to renew them, to redeem them, to ask if they knew what leads to life so that they might find that path again. He's asking, do you know what really leads to life and are you leading others there? That's Jesus' question for them and it's also his question for us. They didn't know, do you? If you're not sure this morning, then this text implores you, find out. Ask someone who's a Christian. Don't be content like the leaders of this passage to settle for a non-answer. For just, I don't know. But to be more courageous than that, to be more bold than that, to demand an answer, to wrestle until you have one, to find the way that leads to life. And if you are a Christian, if you say, yes, you do know the way that leads to life this morning, do you and God agree? Does what you say leads to life, acknowledging yourself to be a Christian, actually line up with what God says in Scripture? Because if it's not what God says, that's the core of Jesus' very question here. Was John's ministry from God or was it not? In the same way, is your spiritual life from God or is it not? Is it representing just you or does it represent God? Because if it represents just you, it is not ultimately from the source of life. It is ultimately a walking away from the source of life. Any time that we depart from what God has for us, we are not walking to something better. We are walking to something less, to a settling, to a giving in, to a walking away. If we say yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, does our life say yes too? Does the things that we just did last night, Saturday night, do those things say that we know the way to life and it is through God? The things that we've done this past week, this past year, the things that we have left undone in our lives, in our community, in our families, do those things say that we know the way to life? 
I would encourage you this morning, let the Holy Spirit guide your heart to that place where you know that you are walking in spiritual blindness right now. And not just to put you in shame, but so that you might be led out of that, not to stop you being a Christian, but to stop you from being a blind Christian so that you might lead others to the light because God calls us to leave our spiritual blindness as Christians, not to stop being guides to the world, but to stop being blind guides. That's what the call of our first confrontation is here, to lead others to the light, to the light that we ourselves have been led to. These leaders, however, didn't see the light. They didn't even know their own blindness that Jesus was trying to wake up to, but Jesus did. And their blindness seems to only urge him to engage with them more. Hear that this morning, that in the blindness of your own heart, in your own life, that does not make God more distant from you, but actually causes him to lean in, to draw closer, to pursue you more. Your hardness of heart is never you being abandoned by God. It is God only stepping in time and again and again and again to find you, to come after you, to chase you down. God chases after those who are his. He pursues us and our hardness of heart will not stop him. Jesus presses deeper into the confrontation to try and lead his people out here. And that's what we see in our second consideration, the confrontation through a parable. With their non-answer, Jesus is not satisfied with that. He's not content to let them stay in their spiritual blindness. He wants to press in to try to push further and bring them out. So he tells a parable here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Parables, as uh, we've said before, are something like riddles meant to challenge you and change your life. They are meant to be, by nature, transformative. So how does this parable aim to actually transform them, to challenge them? Well, it does it in a lot of different ways. Uh, but when we compare this parable to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, uh, we see some very distinct parallels and we understand where Jesus is going with this. So in Isaiah chapter 5, God calls Israel his unfruitful, wicked vineyard. And he says that he is the Lord of that vineyard and that he actually, similarly to our uh, parable here, he planted it, he dug it out, he built a tower for it. But because of its wickedness, he would have to come and tear it down. So when we understand that connection, that parallel, we see draw, Jesus draw up a story here that's clearly meant to show us a few things. It's clearly meant to show God, just as he was in Isaiah 5, as the owner of the vineyard, which is God's people, in that time ancient Israel. It's also meant to show God's prophets as the servants that wicked Israel continues to turn away from. It's meant to show Jesus as the beloved son that the tenants would kill. And if we just look back to Mark chapter 11, it already said that those who were opposing Jesus, these religious leaders, wanted to kill him. And it shows us that the leaders of Israel are the wicked tenants who turn away God's messengers time and again. So there are a lot of challenges that we could try to unpack from that parable, but I don't have that much time. So what I want to focus on is how this parable challenges the leader's blind disregard for God's mercy. That's what I want to focus on, how this parable challenges the leader's blind disregard for God's mercy. 
Uh, where does that come from? How does that show up in our parable here? I think it's actually easy to miss. It's easy when we're reading this uh, to look at this and wonder primarily about the owner, to wonder about the figure of God. Why does he keep sending servants when they keep beating them up? Why does he send his son when they have already beaten and killed so many servants? Why doesn't he just show up and evict them and put them in prison? Why doesn't he do that? Isn't this a foolish way to act? But it's easy to miss what is perhaps more glaring here because Jesus is telling this parable to the tenants, to the religious leaders. It's easy to miss the foolishness of the tenants, to think that somehow they could keep abusing and dishonoring and killing the owner's servants and that nothing would happen to them. Yet that's who Jesus is speaking to, these tenants, to those who were misusing and abusing the messengers of God, who had called them to repent, to return to faithfulness time and again. He is confronting these leaders, not with the mystery of God's choices, but with the puzzling mystery of their own choices. That's what Jesus is doing here and showing us the foolish wickedness of these tenants. He is not confronting them with the mystery of God's choices, but with the puzzling mystery of their own stubborn hard-heartedness. Why would they continue to respond to the messengers of God so foolishly? Not why would God send them, but why would they continue to pass up God's chance time and time again to make things right? The passage really makes us ask, how blind are they? Each servant was not an affront to their right to run the vineyard their way. It wasn't a show of God's weakness, uh, the owner's weakness, or his unwillingness to respond to injustice and sin. We see that at the end of the parable, that he would come and wipe them out. Now, each servant and messenger, even the son himself, was an olive branch. Another example of God's patience after walking away from him in sin. Another example of a God who didn't come to just wipe them out right away at the first chance he had when they did something wrong, but a God who kept giving them chances to make it right time and again and again. This is the extravagant mercy of God. Sending messenger after messenger, letting these olive branches be tortured, mocked, beaten, afflicted, humiliated, stoned, sawn in two, killed, impoverished, and afflicted, as Hebrews chapter 11 describes the prophets. And did so until all the messengers were spent. Did so up to the very point where the last that he has to send is his very own son, Jesus Christ. Not just to speak with these tenants and warn them, or just to speak with us and warn us, but to be the one who was destroyed in their place, in our place, for their sins and for ours, so that we might not be wiped out for our spiritual blindness. That the son's coming, that the prophet's coming, that these were acts of mercy of God, patience of God, long-suffering of God, waiting for people to have another chance. He took the cost of our fruitless tendency upon himself so that this stubborn vineyard of our heart, of my heart, of your heart, might not be destroyed but redeemed. Do you know that this morning? That God's first impulse to you is not to abandon you, is not to destroy you, is not to just send you off, but to redeem you, to give you more and more patience, more and more opportunities. This is the extravagant mercy of God. Do you see it? 
That's the question this parable is confronting us with. Do you see it? Do you see it all around you in the hundred different circumstances in your life that you might be overlooking right now? Do you see it in the life and death of Jesus Christ on your behalf, the very Son of God who would follow messenger after messenger, who was rejected, beaten, despised, killed, knowing full well what was coming for him, not having any illusions that being sent as this final messenger was going to mean that he would be anything but rejected, beaten, crucified. Do you see the mercy of a God who would let himself be destroyed on the cross for you, for your sins, instead of destroying you when you deserved to be destroyed? How often in our day-to-day life right now, in our world, in the things that outrage us, do we want to see those things that outrage us just destroyed? But the impulse of God is to have mercy on us, to approach us in grace, to have us not be destroyed, but be redeemed, to be brought home. Do you know what that restraint takes? That humility and that mercy. Do you see it? The leaders didn't see it. All they saw was Jesus speaking this parable against them, as the text says. And maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe you feel like this text is being spoken against you, but Jesus wasn't against them and he isn't against you. He was for them. He is for you. He is one last messenger, one last olive branch, and not just a messenger, but the son, the one who would lay down his life, not to just tell us what to see, but to give us new eyes to actually be able to see it. New lives at the expense of his own life, his life for ours, his death for ours, his future for ours. Do you see it? The leaders didn't see it, and so they set themselves against him, even recruiting more people to try to discredit him. As we see in our third confrontation this morning, we move on to our last point here, the confrontation through a coin. This shows up in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, and involves Jesus and another group of leaders, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And for the sake of time, I will just boil that down to say these were other power players, other power players leading ancient Israel at that time. But unlike the first group, they weren't trying to just discredit Jesus. They weren't trying to just put him in his place. They were trying to put Jesus in a trap. They ask him a seemingly impossible question. If the first question that he receives way back in the confrontation in the temple is just a disingenuous question, that's really a a question, uh, anger masquerading as a question, right? This is actually a question that's meant as a trap. They ask him a seemingly impossible question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? They're trying to get him to go on the record here to make a public statement. And just as some background, as a conquered Roman province, Israel was required to pay taxes to their Roman occupiers. And as you can imagine, such a tax was deeply unpopular with people who had been brutally occupied and continued to be oppressed. Yet you can also imagine not paying such a tax and advocating that an oppressed, conquered people not pay such a tax would put you in deep trouble with the Romans who were notorious for their brutality. So knowing that, here's the trap that they're trying to get Jesus to walk into. As one commentator, Robert Stein, explains it. He says, if Jesus says yes, 
He will alienate the people who despise the taxes they are forced to pay to Rome. Okay, option A. If he says no, option B, this would result in an immediate confrontation with Rome, his arrest, and for the Roman authorities, uh, they would not tolerate such a clear act of insurrection. So regardless of whether Jesus would answer yes or no, they would succeed in bringing an end to his popularity and ministry. This is their gambit. They are trying to bring him down in this one moment. But Jesus's response shows them that they are actually the ones in the midst of a trap. Asking for a Roman coin, he asks them, whose image is on the coin? And the Pharisees and the Herodians respond, Caesar's. To which Jesus replies, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. What Jesus says in that from the Roman side of things is pretty obvious. Give Caesar his money, pay your taxes, give him his image inscribed coin. But what he says about giving to God may be less obvious and is actually more important and shows us how they were trapped. So I wanna, I wanna dig in on that a little more. So if the people were to give Caesar back his own image, to give him back the coins that bear his image in the tax, then the people were also, in Jesus' response here, to give God back his image. It's a one for one. Give to Caesar his image, give to God his image, which was their whole self, their whole life. Because scripture tells us humanity is made in the image of God. We are the image of God. In this scenario, we are the image that bears the likeness of the emperor, the likeness of the king, except our king isn't king over a few years, over a certain part of the globe. Our king is the eternal God of the universe, and we are made in his image. He has given his image life in us. We are the possession of a greater king in a greater kingdom. So what Jesus is trying to show them here in this tax question that they were trying to trap him with is that they were actually the ones trapped. Trapped by concentrating their lives on an unfathomably lesser king and an unfathomably smaller issue. They were trapped by letting the image of God in them with all its greatness be held captive to and consumed by things that will pass away. He was not the one that was trapped. They were the ones that were trapped. The question he raises in this is, why are you so consumed by temporary things? Don't you know who you belong to? Don't you know, brothers and sisters, whose you are, what you are, that you are made in the image of God most high, that you are princes and princesses of the kingdom, that you are royalty, and yet you were concerned about some temporary tax, some temporary kingdom. You're made in the image of an infinitely greater king, part of an unfading kingdom, heirs to eternal life, but you want to know if you can get out of paying taxes. Why are you letting yourself be consumed by a thousand lesser concerns? Why are you letting yourself be trapped? 
Why are you letting yourself be trapped maybe this morning by what our government can or can't do for you? Not that we shouldn't strive for a better life, a more just, equal, and civil society, but this government, like all governments, will ultimately let us down and will ultimately pass away in eternity. Why are you being so consumed by something that is only temporary? Not that we shouldn't strive, but is it consuming you? Why are you letting yourself, perhaps this morning, be consumed by a lesser leader, whether the one that just left or the one that just got started? Are they so big in your eyes that God is so small? Who pops up in your head more, in your heart more, God or Trump, God or Biden? some other leader who isn't God. If there was a screen time for your soul, whose image would be there more? One of those leaders or God? Why are you letting yourself be consumed by a temporary ruler when you are an eternal son or daughter of God Most High? Why are you letting yourself be consumed by things that won't matter after you've spent only one single day in heaven. Give the image of God that is yourself back to the only one who can actually take care of it. This is the call of the gospel, to return our souls to the only one who can lead us out of darkness and into eternal life. There's no other king that can do that. This is Jesus' loving but firm invitation to them and to us to come out of our blindness into spiritual sight, to come home. That's what he's doing in this passage, inviting them, inviting us to not be so trapped, to not be so consumed, but to know who we are and whose we are. That's what he's doing here. So I want to invite us to look very briefly then at how we might actually apply this to our lives in closing. I want to encourage you to do two things, to ask and to seek. Ask. I want to encourage you, ask yourself the three primary questions that are drawn out of our text this morning that came up from Jesus's responses. Actually, I want to invite you to ask someone else to tell you what they think about you in response to these questions. Someone you trust, someone that you trust to be both gracious and truthful. To ask yourself and to have someone ask you, do you know what leads to life and are you leading others there? To ask yourself, where am I living in a way that doesn't lead to life according to God? Not according to how I want to interpret scripture, not according to how I want to think about God, not according to what I think will happen in the future, what I think is fair and just. Do I agree with God about what leads to life? Because God is the author and perfecter of our lives. How can we disagree with him and think that we are anywhere near the right answer? And do you see, in our second question that we talked about, do you see the extravagant mercy of God in your life? Or are you missing it? Are you walking right over the 100 mercies that he has put in your life this day? Are you outright opposed to them? How do you need to return to an appreciation for the mercy of God in your life? I'm not saying that you should pretend like life isn't hard, that you haven't suffered loss, that things aren't difficult. But do you see the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ? 
because that's supposed to be worth more to us than anything else, which isn't to lessen the pains that we have, but to grow our appreciation of Christ. If he can be that much more valuable than the pain we have suffering, how much more should we love him? How much more should be, be enlivening our lives and not just an afterthought? He should be giving us hope. And ask that third question, why are you so concerned, so consumed by temporary things? Ask yourself, what's consuming your thought life right now? And will that thing still mean something in a thousand years? Will it mean anything when I've spent 900 and some odd years of those 1,000 in heaven? Will it really mean anything? Why am I so consumed by something that will mean nothing in heaven? Or if I am consumed by things that will have value in heaven, am I consumed by them in an unhealthy way, in a way that doesn't show that God is king, that doesn't reflect that I trust him to be king over his kingdom and that I will work to my utmost, but I will still let him be king and trust that he is the only king that I can have. Why are you so concerned with temporary things? Are you trying to get out of taxes, maybe literally, uh, in some way in your life right now? And is that drive what most characterizes you? What someone would know most about you by how you talk, by every time you have a conversation, do they hear the same kind of things from you, the same complaints about this or that, the same complaint about this program, this government, this thing that's happening in our country or your state, this thing that's happening in your life or at work? Are you most characterized by a complaint? Give the image of God yourself back to the God who alone can love and care for you. So just ask those three questions of yourself. Try to be as honest as you can and invite someone else to be more honest than you can be into your life with you. Those three questions. Do you know what leads to life and are you leading others there? Do you see the extravagant mercy of God in your life? And why are you so concerned with temporary things? Ask those things and finally seek. Seek out some help. Because we've realized through our text that being told what to see and actually being able to see are two very different things. Jesus was trying to get the religious leaders to see, pointing out to them where the deficiencies were in their own spiritual life. It, no one can make things plainer than Jesus. And yet being told is not enough. We have to be changed. It's not just having someone tell us what to do, it's being changed that will actually change us. Otherwise, we're never going to see. So that means we need the power of the Holy Spirit breathing new life into our deadened hearts. We need a savior, not just a guide. That's what Jesus Christ is about. He didn't come just to be your example, though he is. If all he was meant to be was an example, then he would not have needed to die in our place. We needed something more than an example. We needed someone who could make us alive from the dead. That's why he went to the cross, that we and our old selves might be crucified with him, so that in his resurrection, we might be raised with him. We need someone to raise us up, not just to show us the way. We need both of those things. We need more than a guide. Jesus did not come just to be our guide. Seek out his help, not as just a guide, but as a savior. Someone who not just shows you what to do, but carries you there. Who gives you the new life to actually do those things. Seek out the help that you need. Seek God's help. Don't just rely on yourself. Pray about these things. Pray like he can do something, like he is still God. And seek help also 
where the Holy Spirit has given you to see this morning that you're walking in blindness. Seek help for that thing from someone in your life. We aren't meant to recover from these things alone. Spiritual blindness isn't healed when we keep our struggle to ourselves. So I want to encourage you to let go this morning of the blindness that says, I have to do this on my own. I have to keep some sort of shame in here. I have to sit in my own little world and do this by myself. Let go of that blindness. That is not walking in spiritual light. The new spiritual light lets us see that we struggle with others, that actually part of leading others to the light is admitting that we need the light too. That's part of how we lead them there, not being those that offer the hand up from those who are standing above, but those who walk side by side, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with those who need to go to the same place. That's what we are called to in the spiritual life, not to do it on our own, but to know that we don't have to. So knowing that, brothers and sisters, let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercies to us. Pray that you would help us to be more thankful, to see more of your mercies in our lives, the little mercies, the small things that we have overlooked, the graces that we pass up every day, the little things like having food or clothing or shelter, the fact that we were healthy today instead of sick, the fact that we had some work to do, that we had a moment of joy. God, help us to see these mercies. Help us to see your olive branches to us in our lives and not to walk right over them. And God, we just confess all the ways that we have been caught up in so many temporary things that we have let ourselves as your image become captive to these lesser images, these lesser gods, these lesser kingdoms. God, would you forgive us for these things and change us? Would you lead us in a new way out of our spiritual blindness that we might walk in the freedom of being sons and daughters of God most high, not trapped by the things of this world, but transforming them through the power of your love worked out in us. Help us to know the way that leads to life and walk in it ourselves. In your son's name and by your spirit, we pray. Amen. I invite you to join us in singing one last song here as we respond to this God who so loves us and pursues us at every turn. Let's sing.